Hello, and welcome to the third episode in Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series on construction arbitration. I'm Susan Field, a senior associate and solicitor advocate in the International Arbitration Group in London. I'm Craig Tevendale, head of the International Arbitration Group in London. And I'm Olivia Liang, an associate in the construction disputes team in London. Today we'll be talking about documents and factual witnesses in construction arbitrations. Construction cases are often factually complex, which makes this fact evidence especially important. Let's start with documents, and in particular, document production. That's a challenging and time-consuming part of any arbitration, isn't it, Craig? Yes, and all the more so in construction disputes, which tend to be very document-heavy. Olivia, what kinds of documents do you tend to see in these cases? Well, as you'd expect, each project is likely to generate its own set of facts and documentation. Contractual documentation, including the conditions, appendices and variation orders, is always going to be relevant. The same goes for contemporaneous documents, such as correspondence with the parties. For disputes involving claims of time, you'll want to collate any baseline and amended schedules, as well as any site logs and daily or monthly progress reports. In essence, anything which would demonstrate the actual impact of delay events. And, in arbitrations involving disputed sums of money due, you should pull together copies of any documents which could provide the existence and quantum of loss. That would include, for example, timesheets, receipts and invoices. It's important to get to grips with the documents early. You can't really start to build your case in a fact-heavy dispute until you've got a handle on the documents. It's vital to start gathering and reviewing the documents from the outset. And of course, when you're looking at a lot of documents, you need to find a way to focus that review. So, for example, once you've identified useful documents, you can focus your search for other helpful documents in the same category or time frame. Maybe you find that a lot of relevant facts were recorded in the weekly reports, perhaps percentage completion reports or updates on defects. So now you need to track down a full set of weekly reports. And also work out what's missing and what you will need to request from the other side too. And we'll come back to that later. You might also think about whether you need to involve potential fact witnesses and even expert witnesses early on to help you identify what the core documents are or to help you fully understand them. Yes, witness interviews can be a great way to build a clear picture of the document universe. So, for example, did communication take place primarily by phone or in person or by email? Who kept a notebook? How often were reports prepared? And who received them? All of this highlights, I think, the importance of good document management and record keeping during the project, long before any dispute arises. Those documents will provide a paper trail, which is often decisive as to events and sequence. Taking Susan's earlier example, it won't be easy to challenge the facts recorded by contemporaneous weekly reports if no one disagreed in writing at the time. So it will be very important to set the record straight then and there, and to make sure that you've stated your position clearly, or at least made it clear that you don't accept what's been said. It's also worth bearing in mind that if there is an online database of documents used on the project in question, it might be possible to use that existing database to store those project documents. And in fact, that database may be useful evidence in itself to demonstrate what documents were historically accessed and used by the parties and witnesses. In fact, that point is also raised in the 2019 ICC Commission's report on construction industry arbitration. On that note, it's worth considering some general tips for harvesting documents. It's obviously helpful if you have a reasonably comprehensive online depository of documents, but even if you do have one, it's inevitable that there will be key documents which are stored in other locations, for example, internal emails and documents saved on shared drives or in local networks. 
Yes, one of the decisions which you should ideally make at a relatively early stage will be whether to rely on an in-house IT team to collect documents or to engage an external e-disclosure provider. That decision will depend on the volume and the complexity of the searches you'll need to run, as well as the expertise available in-house. Either way, it's important to provide exact instructions on what needs to be collected. That applies to variables such as custodians, i.e. the people who have or have had control of the relevant documents, the date range and sources of data, and to less obvious factors such as document metadata. Ideally, you'd want to adopt a relatively consistent approach across each custodian. It's also important to keep a careful record of any decisions to collect or not to collect data. It's much easier to explain and justify harvesting decisions if you have a clear audit trail. It also makes it much easier if you need to harvest further documents. You'll also want to ensure that you leave sufficient time to collect hard copy documents and documents stored on older devices such as CDs or even floppy disks. That's right. The process for collecting hard copy documents can be particularly time intensive. Those documents need to be located, scanned, and assuming that you're using an electronic document management system, or EDMS, manually reviewed and coded to show the date, document name and author. Of course, the scale of the document harvesting exercise that you will carry out will depend on the stage of the dispute. If the arbitration is already well underway, you'll need to undertake more intensive searches in comparison to the steps that would be needed at an earlier stage of the case, perhaps when the parties are still negotiating or discussing settlement, and when arbitration is just a possibility. Yes, definitely. The same consideration also applies to any upfront investment you make into any electronic document management systems, which Susan mentioned a moment ago. EDMSs can be enormous help when it comes to the initial process of searching for and organising documents, as they allow parties to run word searches to narrow down the documents, which are likely to be key. Parties can also use tags to code and categorise documents as being relevant to specific issues, so that they can be retrieved later. It's also important to remember that some documents will not work well within EDMSs. Some electronic documents commonly referenced in construction arbitrations are found in file formats that are peculiar to the construction industry. CAD files and other technical drawings are often file formats that aren't handled too well by online review platforms. Yes, that's true. Additional work may be involved to convert the file into a format that the review platform can recognise, like a PDF, and that can create problems. It's important to ensure that the integrity, accuracy and functionality of the original document is maintained. Often the EDMMS will also provide a link to the document in its original format, which is a safety net and a sense check. And it's worth flagging that the use of these EDMS platforms is basically standard on any mid to high value construction arbitration, which makes it to the disclosure stage. So whilst it can be expensive to set up and maintain an EDMS platform, it's a cost that you may want to front load for disputes which are likely to make it to disclosure, given the likelihood that one would need to be created in due course. It can also be a cost saver when you consider the time that might be involved in carrying out the process manually. It's good to see that some of the institutional rules and guidance now reflect the importance of technology to document management. So, for example, the 2018 HKIC rules allow the parties to submit documents through secured online repositories, either their own or as provided by the HKIC. Yes, and they also actively require tribunals to consider the effective use of technology when adopting a procedure for the conduct of the arbitration in order to avoid unnecessary delay or expense. The 2019 update to the ICC Commission's report on construction industry arbitration also recommends that the tribunal should remind the parties to use online platforms for storage and exchange of documents. Alongside this guidance, there has also been calls for significantly reduced document production 
which is a central element of the Prague Rules, another opt-in set of procedural guidelines. In practice, it seems unlikely that we'll see many construction arbitrations adopting the default Prague Rules position. That's one where the Tribunal should avoid document production entirely, including e-discovery. But the rules are at least a useful reminder that controlling document production is especially important in construction arbitration where large-scale production is commonplace. I should also mention that as part of good document management practice, you should bear in mind issues around creation of new documents, including emails, internal memos and reports. These could be disclosable in the event that there is a formal dispute, so do exercise caution if these documents are likely to be damaging. It's advisable for the legal team to inform individuals that, ideally, any sensitive issues should be dealt with orally, and if written communications can't be avoided, they should be kept as factual as possible and, crucially, shouldn't include any omissions of responsibility on the issues in dispute. One way to reduce the risk is to ensure that, as much as possible anyway, new documents are protected by privilege. So, where appropriate, communications should be prepared by lawyers and any written reports on sensitive issues should ideally be in the form of a report of legal advice and marked privileged. There are other important privilege points to consider. We won't have time to go into them in great detail today, but we can at least reiterate the importance of ensuring that communications remain confidential. If privileged material is circulated too widely, then privilege can be lost because the confidentiality of the document can be destroyed. There are also complex issues around who is or is not the client for the purposes of a privileged lawyer and client communication. The rules in this area are fairly nuanced in their application, but in any event it's clearly advisable to restrict the circulation of privileged material. As Craig mentioned earlier, in arbitration you have an opportunity to request documents in the control of the other party, so it's important to identify the gaps in your document set. You will also be required to produce documents, which is another reason to use an EDMS, so that you can more easily meet those obligations. This document production phase is an important part of the evidence gathering and case building process. In arbitration, the parties can agree to narrow the scope of document production compared to the standard disclosure approach of traditional English court litigation. This is done via document requests usually broadly following the process set out in the IBA rules on the taking of evidence in international arbitration. These requests are typically set out in what's known as a Redfern schedule. And just to outline what that involves, both parties prepare lists of requests for specific documents or categories of documents from the other side that they think will support their case. The opposing party can agree to those requests and produce the documents or refuse them and explain in the schedule why. For example, that they're too broad, or irrelevant, or privileged. The tribunal will then decide whether to allow the requests and will order production. It's important to make your document requests narrow and specific, and to explain in sufficient detail the relevance of the request. If not, they may be rejected by the tribunal. In order to cut down costs for document production, you might also want to consider using predictive coding. Essentially, this involves using software to recognise and classify relevant documents. The starting point is creating a training set of documents. This is done by getting a member of the legal team to review and code one or more batches of documents for relevance, privilege and specific issues. The system will then use algorithms to learn from the training set and apply the reviewer's decisions to the remaining documents. The lawyer will then need to carry out a further check to validate the reliability of the coding decisions made by the system. 
It's worth bearing in mind, though, that predictive coding won't be appropriate for all cases. Generally speaking, the technology works best where you have a large pool of potentially relevant documents. The cost savings would then be much greater compared to a case with a more limited data set, where many of the documents would need to be reviewed anyway to create the initial training set. Of course, the results you get from the technology are only as good as the results you feed in as part of the initial training set. So, you need to ensure that the criteria for relevance and the issues have been consistently and properly applied during the training set, ideally by senior lawyers. Agreed. There are also some limits to the technology. It doesn't work as well on documents that aren't fully text-based, such as Excel spreadsheets, which can be one of the largest file types on construction disputes. It also doesn't work at all on audio and video evidence or photographs. Having said that, how you use predictive coding is up to you. You don't have to primarily rely upon it to identify disclosable documents. It's also possible to use it to test the results of human review in order to ensure the accuracy of coding decisions. We've spent a fair bit of time on documents, but we should also talk about tips for managing fact witnesses, as witness evidence is another important area in construction arbitration. It's important to secure witnesses early. This is largely a matter of common sense. It goes without saying that, ideally, you want witnesses whose memories of the relevant issues in dispute are relatively fresh when you come to attain the witness statement. Another reason is that often a large part of the fact witness's role is to explain the documents, especially where they are technical or not clear on their face. Securing this evidence early will ensure the universe of documents is fully understood. There is, of course, an interplay between fact witness evidence and documentary evidence. For example, witnesses can also explain away the absence of documents that might otherwise lead to adverse inferences by the tribunal. For example, they may explain that in practice certain issues were only discussed in person, or that simply there was poor record-keeping on the project. Or the witness can help put the document in context. On one of my recent cases, our witness explained that some monthly reports were prepared for project lenders, and so it would have been inappropriate to include criticisms of their own subcontractors in the document. That helped to take the sting out of the subcontractor's reliance on the absence of any criticism of their performance in those documents. Yes, so it's best to have witnesses review key documents early on, so that you can understand and identify any important, helpful or unhelpful issues early. The question of who your witnesses should be is an important one too, as often construction projects can go on for many years with multiple people in the same role but at different times. It's obviously critical to get people who were actually involved at the time of the alleged breach and who saw or prepared the relevant documents. I agree. And that's another reason why you should secure witnesses early. Depending on their role, people working in the construction industry can move around a great deal. So if someone's about to retire or leave the organisation for a rival outfit, it may be sensible to arrange urgently for a witness statement to be taken. That wouldn't be ideal if you don't yet have a clear idea of the issues, but it's better than nothing at all. Equally, it's worth remembering that witness evidence should add something more than what the documents show on their face. Sometimes it's helpful to have a witness put a document into context, but it's generally better to avoid unnecessary witness evidence for reasons of efficiency and cost, and it's worth giving considered thought to whether the case really needs the evidence of all of the potential witnesses on the shortlist. This is a point which is emphasised in the Prague rules which call for the tribunal to restrict oral witness evidence. The tribunal is empowered to refuse to admit oral witness evidence where it considers it to be irrelevant, immaterial, unreasonably burdensome, duplicative, 
or for any other reasons not necessary for the resolution of the dispute. That's absolutely right, Craig. You should also bear in mind that even when you do identify and obtain evidence from witnesses early, you want to ensure they're engaged throughout the whole process. You want to avoid your key witnesses just sitting down to read the bundle for the first time the day before the hearing. Securing of the right level of input can sometimes be tricky. Everyone is usually very busy on their day jobs. The practical reality is that the vast majority of witness statements and arbitrations will have been drafted by lawyers and then reviewed and signed off by the witness, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the most compelling witness statements are those where the witnesses have been closely involved in preparing the statement by taking the time to remember events and retelling them in their own words, identifying the key documents and contextualising them, rather than relying solely on the documents identified by the lawyer and the points made from them. Following on from that point, in arbitration, the timing for preparation of statements will be informed by the particular procedure ordered by the tribunal. In a memorial-style procedure, the witness statements will be submitted at the same time as the statements of case, and the statements of case will be drafted so as to rely on that evidence, so early preparation is critical. But if witness statements are to come after the full exchange of written pleadings, more akin to English court procedure, you might be better to wait until the issues have been narrowed before finalising statements with your witnesses. The tribunal will also make procedural orders in relation to how the witness evidence will be dealt with at the hearing. Recently, there have been calls for more innovative approaches to witness evidence, some of which are set out in the 2019 ICC Commission's report on construction industry arbitration. That's very true, Greg. The ICC have been quick to point out the benefits that fact witness panels, or what's better known as witness hot tubbing, could bring to construction arbitration. These could increase efficiency and reduce repetitive evidence. Where witness panels, or witness hot tubbing, are used, Witnesses give evidence at the same time instead of one after another. Hearing fact witnesses together, at least theoretically, has the potential to allow factual issues to be clarified more effectively. While at the moment hot tubbing is more commonly used for expert witnesses than for fact witnesses, we might start to see hot tubbing proposed by some tribunals for fact witnesses as well. The CRP guidelines for witness conferencing, which were released back in April last year, also highlight the value in witness hot tubbing and they clearly envisage the use of hot tubbing for fact witnesses as well as experts. They provide directions on how the process can be used to resolve issues such as conflicting factual evidence or for helping to determine the credibility of witnesses. Speaking of witness credibility, another key issue is how best to prepare witnesses for the process of giving evidence at the hearing. It's important to ensure that witnesses are familiar with the documents in the bundle and of course their own witness statements before they come to give evidence. Obviously, you must be careful that this familiarisation process does not stray into impermissible witness coaching. Less obvious is the point that approaches and expectations can vary between different jurisdictions and sometimes between different counsel and tribunals. The objective is to prepare the witness to give their own evidence as best they can, not to put words into their mouths. Tribunals like witnesses who know that their role is to give evidence about facts within their knowledge and who can give their evidence truthfully, openly, and ideally concisely. What tribunals don't like is witnesses who argue the case for their side, which I've often seen happen. We should also take a moment to talk about language issues. These often arise in international arbitration. Construction arbitrations are often very international, and you'll often end up dealing with key documents which may be in a different language to that of the arbitration. Yes, which is why translations are so important. 
It goes without saying that a poor translation can undermine your case if it distorts the meaning of a key document. Unclear translations also take a lot longer to review and analyse and therefore increase your costs. Ideally, you'd want to engage translators early and retain the same teams throughout the arbitration. This can be particularly important in a construction that context due to the number of technical terms and engineering concepts that translators are likely to need to familiarise themselves with. It's also important to check translations provided by the other side. Yes, I worked in an arbitration where, two weeks before we were due to file a submission, we asked the translator to check one of the translated emails exhibited by the other side. It turned out the other side's translator had made a mistake with an idiom, which meant that the email meant almost the exact opposite of what was suggested by the original translation. We ended up relying on that document to knock down a pretty central part of the other side's case. Another point you'll have to consider, a bit later down the line, is whether an interpreter is needed at the evidentiary hearing for witnesses who are not native speakers of the language of the arbitration. Sometimes that's unavoidable, but it's often the case, in English language arbitrations at least, that a witness has some facility with the language but isn't confident or fluent. That's right, Susan. And in those cases, you need to think about the pros and cons of using an interpreter. If a witness can speak directly to the arbitrator, albeit in a second language, they're more likely to be able to convey their evidence effectively. Equally, though, if a credible and confident witness can best express themselves in their first language, that can shine through despite the language barrier. And what you really don't want is for the witness to misunderstand the question and give confused evidence, which you then have to unpick in re-examination. An interpreter is often used tactically in some arbitrations, as it can break up the pace of an aggressive cross-examination and can buy the witness more time to think, especially if they understand enough of the language to get the early gist of the question. You do need to be careful here, though. I once had a witness who insisted on an interpreter, and then, in the heat of the moment, answered a question in English before it had been interpreted. If this happens, it can give the impression that the interpreter is being used to protect the witness, and that the translation process is an inappropriate waste of time. Time is an important point, because usually the time for interpretation will be taken from the time allocation of the party putting forward that witness. So you must weigh that into the balance too, particularly if your opponent is not using an interpreter. Absolutely, Craig. And if you're short for time but really need an interpreter, you could use concurrent interpretation rather than consecutive. A good halfway house that I've seen is to have an interpreter on hand, and the witness can then ask for interpretation if they don't understand a specific question. You need to be careful, though, that they don't just deploy that when the questions get difficult. We hope that's been a helpful overview of some of the key issues which arise around documentary evidence and fact-witness evidence in construction arbitrations. Of course, the timing and the scope of the steps you take will depend upon the size of the dispute, both in terms of the amount that's at stake and the number and complexity of the issues in dispute. At the end of the day, it's a balancing act. Thanks, Craig and Olivia. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you find our tips helpful. If you would like to discuss any of the points we've raised, then please do get in touch with me, Susan Field, Craig or Olivia, or your usual Herbert Smith Freehills contact. The next episode in this Construction Arbitration podcast series will be on case preparation and will be hosted by James Doe, Maglon de Brugier and Emily Blanchard. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode.